0: So, our celebration of Independence Day provides an interesting uh, comparison highlighting the significance of today's passage regarding the Jerusalem Council. Today is, of course, July 4th. Uh, it's the day that we as Americans celebrate our declared independence from Great Britain, Great Britain on July 4th, 1776. 1776. entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. The way this newly formed nation related to one another and to others around them would be changed from this day forward. If we could be transported somehow back to 1776 and could look in on that on that second Continental Congress, those meetings in the earliest days of the forming of our nation, we would have witnessed a group of men, because of a decent respect for the opinions of mankind, as they stated, seeking to define the reasons they were united together and seeking to define the reasons they were distinct from all other nations on earth in a similar way if we could be transported back to the first century the first century and look in on the jerusalem council we would have witnessed a group of men also seeking to define the reasons they were united together And the reasons they were distinct from all other people on earth. And that would have been true from this day, that is the day that this council met, forward. Our passage is Acts 15, verses 1 through 11. Hear then the word of Almighty God. Being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So Lord, would you lead us now? Help us to come to a a fresh and even deeper appreciation for the good news of the gospel message. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we seek to try to get at the essence of this question or this controversy, and as we seek to grapple with some of its implications, let's distill the issue like this. We are saved by grace alone not by grace alone plus one more thing. We are saved by grace alone, not grace alone plus one more thing or grace alone plus anything. We are saved by Christ through grace, by faith in him and his atoning sacrifice. So let's first look at the, the theological problem, and it is fundamentally a theological problem, in verses one through five. And then we'll begin to unpack Peter's input towards the solution to that problem in verses six through eleven. So the key issue, the, the presenting theological problem at hand, is, is is basically bookended in verses one and five. Of our first section. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's verse 1 and verse 5. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them, that is the, the new Gentile converts, to keep the law of Moses. That's the issue. Now, as we, we think about the context. Recall that uh, Paul and Barnabas, they've, they've returned from their first missionary journey as they went around the Mediterranean basin in South Galatia, and they're now back at their home church in Syrian Antioch. So at some point, after some passage of time, some men come down from Judea to Syrian Antioch. And if if you know the geography, you know that Syrian Antioch is actually north of there. So they don't come down as in north to south. They come down in terms of elevation from Judea, which was near Jerusalem. And these men who come there begin teaching. That's the issue. They're teaching the other brothers, the new Gentile converts, they must be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, we know from the book of Galatians that we've been reading through, we just read through uh, chapter 3 where Paul is particularly exercised over the last couple of weeks. We know from that book that Paul and Barnabas took this position, that we are saved by grace alone, not by grace plus one more thing. So they argued passionately with those who came from Judea. Eventually, Paul and Barnabas and a few others, they go to Jerusalem to talk with the the apostles and the elders about this issue. And it is a crucial issue. So as they make their way to Jerusalem then, verse 3, they pass through Phoenicia and they pass through Samaria, bringing great joy to the brothers there. Pause. Think about it. How amazing that is. Phoenicia and Samaria. In Matthew's gospel, he, he told the story that Jesus once visited Tyre and Sidon, which is the, the coastal region there of, of Phoenicia or Syro-Phoenicia. But even there, a long way from Jerusalem, a long way from Galilee, where Jesus grew up, a woman was following him because she had a demon-possessed daughter. She was following Jesus around, begging Jesus to heal her daughter. She was so persistent about it that the disciples became really annoyed. So they asked Jesus to send her away. So finally, Jesus says something to the effect of, Look, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. But the woman comes up to him. And this this pagan, Syrophoenician woman kneels down before him and says, Lord, please help me. And we get it. Her daughter's at home in bed, possessed by a demon. And Christ says the most unchristian thing to her. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Seeing if he can elicit, seeing if he can draw out genuine faith from even this pagan woman, to which she responds, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus loves her answer. So much so that he powerfully affirms her in the presence of the disciples. And, by the way, instantly heals her daughter. Cast the demon out without saying a word. But did you notice the tension between the disciples and this woman? It's just a little insight into how these people groups thought about each other. Now, we know that the vitriol between the Jews and the Samaritans is is well-documented. Recall that Jesus once taught a parable that offended the Pharisees, that stunned them, because the protagonist in the story was a good Samaritan. and They didn't like that story at all. So think about it in context here in verse 3. In Acts... In our passage, behold the transforming power of the gospel. This is only a few years later. It's only a few years later from when Jesus was walking on the earth and all of these racial and ethnic tensions were so strong. And now, because of the transforming power of the gospel, hundreds of years of animosity is gone in an instant. Because Jews and Gentiles have come to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. The Samaritan brothers, the Phoenician brothers in these very regions rejoiced when they heard about other nations, other people groups coming to faith in Jesus. Such is the cross cultural beauty and power of the gospel message. So when the brothers arrive, when they get to Jerusalem, they're welcomed by everybody, but you can tell in the way that Luke writes this that the Pharisees are ready to discuss the issue that's at hand right away. Now, Acts 15, by word count, is almost dead center in the book of Acts. And in fact, that's appropriate because... This council meeting really is the turning point for the whole book of Acts. It essentially validates everything and it kind of rounds off everything that's happened up to this point and the decisions that are made at this meeting ultimately make the expansive and explosive growth of the gospel actually possible in the following chapters. But what we need to understand in order to, to, to rightly grasp the concept here or the context here is that this meeting not only served as a, as a watershed a watershed event in the history of the church. This decision at this council literally changed the world. Prior to Pentecost, really Jews didn't have difficulty accepting Gentiles as they. As they trickled into the community of God, providing they, they were circumcised and they committed to follow the Torah, that is the law of Moses. But post-Pentecost, that is from about Acts 2 on, starting with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and moving on to the cities of Paul's first missionary journey, the trickle of Gentile conversions was quickly becoming a torrent. And this caused a tremendous amount of concern among many Jews. John Stott explains, something quite different was happening now, something which disturbed and even alarmed many. Gentile converts were being welcomed into fellowship in large numbers, Was the vision of the Jewish leaders big enough to see the gospel of Jesus Christ not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world? That's a legitimate question. He continues, could they conceive of the church, that is the Jewish leaders, could they conceive of the church not merely as a Jewish sect, but as the international family of God? These were the the revolutionary type questions that the leaders were beginning to ask. Do you see the tension that's available within these early believers and the community of God, the people of God? Do you see the, the tension that, that the glorious good news of the gospel is creating? You have just a taste of a sense of the scope of what is at stake. It led people to ask very practical questions, very good questions, very sincere questions, detailed questions, theological questions. And the answers had massive implications. Is it okay for a new believer, a Gentile convert, to be baptized but not circumcised? I mean, imagine you're just two Jewish dudes walking down the road on the way to work, and you're talking about the fact that Messiah has come. You both recognize Jesus as Messiah, and you're excited about it. And you've heard now about the expanse of the gospel. You've heard the report about this, this enemy of the church who was converted and is now going throughout the earth proclaiming the good news, and Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. And you're, you're thinking, this is awesome. What do you think? You think they need to be circumcised? I mean, you know, we had to be. They're recognizing our Messiah. Shouldn't they be identified with us as a people? You understand the tension. Maybe two ladies are walking to market together having having similar conversations and asking these types of questions. Is it possible to put your faith in Jesus but but not having done any works of the law. I mean, I've I've met some of our Gentile neighbors. Sketchy. <laughs> and we're gonna, we're supposed to sit down for table fellowship this coming weekend. But it causes me to wonder: Can a convert commit to the Messiah, but not to Judaism? How Jewish do you have to become to be Christian? Any Jewishness at all? Or none? These are are massive issues because, as I I have reminded us often, 99% of us are Gentile converts. Because this ultimately is about whether you're saved or not. What must a person do in order to be saved? There are massive implications to that question, but these are the questions that needed answers because the very essence of the gospel is at stake. How is one truly justified before God? How is one saved from the wrath of God against sin? How does one enter into loving, thriving communion with the living God? Now, Lest you think I'm exaggerating, lest you think I'm exaggerating the implications of a simple question about circumcision, or a simple request about just just one aspect of the law, one identity marker. because recall that this is a big deal because it's not it doesn't date back just to the law of Moses, this, this circumcision as an identity marker of the people of God. It goes all the way back to Genesis 17. And the promise to Abram. This is a big deal. So, am I? I feel like I'm in good company. Because this is what Paul said about the matter in Galatians 5. This, the context is exactly the same. He's addressing this issue, circumcision. Circumcision. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, in the context that I'm talking about, that we're talking about, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, in this context, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. If Paul's not exaggerating, I'm definitely not exaggerating. This is a stern warning, but but think about it. Think about it with me. It is also the most freeing, most joyful message imaginable. Paul's concern is that we don't begin by recognizing that we are saved by grace and then try to sneak in a couple of our, maybe our best works, sneak them in the back door our most important works and, and, and think that somehow these will help solidify my standing before God or somehow they'll keep my preservation of faith. Somehow this will help me in justifying me before God. So I'm going to trust in the grace of Jesus 99%, but I'm super glad that I've done a few righteous things to fill in the 1%. Paul says, not only is that unclear thinking, if you hold that view, you just nullified the work of Christ on your behalf. It's that serious. So give up your 1%. Give up your 0.00000001% of your righteousness that you think would justify you before God and depend wholly on Jesus Christ. Paul says there's only two choices. Two choices, self-justification through our own actions or justification through faith alone, by grace alone, based on what Christ alone has accomplished. Those are the only two options. You either are banking on your self-justification before a holy God or you're banking on Christ's ability to justify you before God. Your works, which we just sang about and confessed, are filthy rags or the blood of Jesus Christ, which can make crimson sin whiter than snow. The reality is that we are saved by grace alone, not by grace alone, plus one more thing, whatever that thing is. So the essence of this problem is huge, massive implications. So let's, let's look at Peter's input here then toward the solution to the problem. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. In the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. By giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did, and he made no distinction between us, and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Notice that Peter emphasizes here in verse 7 that it was God's decision to share the gospel with the Gentiles. And and not just to share the gospel with the Gentiles, it was God's decision that they would respond in faith and believe, just as the believing Jews had done earlier in Acts. But, But how was it determined that they actually did genuinely believe. Paul says, God, God himself witnessed on their behalf. That's a big deal. You want God on the witness stand testifying before the world, about the validity of your faith in his son. I mean, what does the judge say when he calls out his testimony? Traitor of heaven and earth, do you swear to tell the truth? And nothing but the truth? So help you. You know what? We're good here. (laughs) We're just going to accept your testimony for what it is. The truth. There's nothing to debate. If God testifies by giving them the Holy Spirit that they're genuine, that their faith is genuine, it's genuine. That's the end of the matter. God's testimony is absolutely the final word. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the determining factor. As as God did this, Peter says, in doing so, God made no distinction. None. No distinction between the Gentiles' conversion and the conversion of the believing Jews. So Peter's argument then is this. If God made no distinction, what gives us the right to impose a distinction? The reason God could treat them as his very own was because he had circumcised their hearts from sin. That is, he had cleansed their hearts by faith, which is the language at the end of verse 9. There is no other identity marker necessary in order to belong to God. Think about this with me, because Paul talks often about true Israel. This is why a circumcised Jew who holds the physical marker being identified with the people of God. This is why a circumcised Jew with an uncircumcised heart is not saved. But an uncircumcised Gentile who has a circumcised heart is saved. This is how Paul says it in Colossians 2. In Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's the gospel, by the way. On the basis of faith alone, Jesus has paid our debt in full forever. God can immediately welcome a sinner into his family on the basis of faith alone because Christ has perfectly fulfilled the requirement of the law on our behalf and has therefore justified us before God apart from the law. Therefore. Brothers and sisters, praise the one who paid our debt. That is, praise the one who, 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 who made up for our spiritual poverty. Praise the one who, who circumcised our hearts, a circumcision without hands. And, and praise the one who raised up our lives from the dead. In light of this, Peter says, Why are you putting God to the test? Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, that is, the new Gentile converts, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? The essence of it is: look, in light of this, don't put God to the test. That's what Peter's saying. But recall the, the biblical imagery of, of a yoke here, so that so that we get, we really fully get what he's saying. A, a yoke was was placed on the on the neck or the back of plow animals, usually to help them to plow in a straight line, right? In other words, to keep them on the straight and narrow, right? Do you get the imagery here with God's law and the similarities about it? But often, biblically, it was described as a heavy weight or a burden when that, when that yoke came down upon you and you tried to grind out in a straight line it, with very hard work everything that needed to happen, And Peter says, look, we ourselves couldn't handle this burden. Think back to the patriarchs. They couldn't handle this burden. Why in the world would we place this weight upon the shoulders or on the neck of Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus? That's his argument. But we know that the weightiness of the law, the yoke of the Torah, the yoke of the law, Even today is a heavy burden. No matter who you are, it can be exhausting. It can be exhausting just trying to live under the yoke of the moral standard of this world or to try to live consistently under the yoke of the moral standard that many of us hold for ourselves let alone think about the sheer futility of trying to daily walk a straight line under the weight of the yoke of the standard of moral perfection encapsulated in God's holy and eternal word. Would you like some help with that? It can be crushing to us spiritually. But if you feel, if you feel the weight of that, And you recognize that you need help with this, then praise God because that's an evidence of God's grace in your life. There's only one thing to do at this point, and that is call out to the one who can help you. Call out to the one who promised to carry your burden for you. In fact, let's just hear from him. Come to me, Jesus says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See the context of those words in light of God's law. So Peter completes his thought here in verse 11 by offering essentially an inoculation against some kind of a prideful mindset that would say something like, I'm planning on holding others to a standard for salvation that that I know that I myself can't even meet. Verse 11, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The grace that Peter is talking about came to us through the atoning blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. It is a sacrifice that we'll be celebrating together in just a few moments. Salvation came to us by grace alone, not by the grace of Jesus plus our Jewish identity. Peter is essentially saying uh, it, it came to us by the grace of Jesus, not by grace plus our external righteousness. Righteousness. It came to us by grace alone, not by grace alone plus our earnestness in attempting to keep the law, or not by grace alone plus our good intentions. If you plan on being a really good person, that counts exactly zero before God in terms of actually being a righteous person. But there is one who was perfectly righteous, who offered his life as a substitute for yours, so that you could be in the presence of God forever. And if you accept his work on your behalf by faith, then you will be saved. Now, Peter is essentially arguing we are saved by the grace of Christ alone, not by grace alone plus any one thing or plus anything. The sacrifice of Christ alone for the salvation of all who call upon his name in faith is its is the reality that we are celebrating. So as we turn now to the communion table. Consider the closing words. We've already looked at the opening words. But consider the closing words of the Declaration of Independence. There's an interesting comparison here as well. The Declaration of Independence of the United States of America closes with these words. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. This is a declaration that is not only an affirmation of the unity that these early Americans shared, but it also conveys a sense of the weightiness of that shared distinction, that is, of being Americans in a new world, in a new land it also conveys an awareness of the value of the lives that would be sacrificed in order to become a new nation under God. Because at this point, the end of the Revolutionary War was still a few years away. But as as weighty as that reality is, how much more for us as the people of God? But we can use similar language. With a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, and with a sense of the far greater weightiness of our shared distinction as the people of God. Today, in communion, we seek to understand with greater clarity the infinite value of the life of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was sacrificed in order to make us into a new and holy nation, a spiritual family, a worshiping community, a living temple, a people for God's own possession, even as the spiritual war of this present age presses on. The old covenant under the Mosaic law described Israel's distinctiveness. The old covenant helped to define sin. It displayed God's providence or God's provision for sin through sacrifice, but it was insufficient. The old covenant was insufficient because the blood of bulls and goats never could take away sin. The old Covenant was temporary, therefore, ultimately pointing to the coming Messiah and the hope of a new and better covenant, one foretold by the prophets. Therefore, we already know that Luke wrote Acts. Luke also wrote a gospel bearing his name. And in chapter 22 of his gospel, he wrote these immortal words. During the Last Supper... He says that Jesus, who is the promised Messiah foretold by the prophets, he took the cup and declared this cup, representing his blood, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This new covenant is based on faith in the shed blood of Jesus to take away sin. It is not dependent on any aspect of the law, for the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Therefore, and by therefore I mean based on everything that we have said up to this point, we eat and drink this morning as a testimony, affirming our faith in what we truly believe, that the sufficiency of the atoning blood of Jesus and His blood alone is the one and only means by which we are justified before Almighty God. Praise be to the Father and to His glorious Son and to the incomparable Holy Spirit. Amen. So the way that communion will work this morning is that we will come essentially row by row to to take the elements, return to your seats with the elements, and then we'll we'll take the elements together in just a few minutes. Uh, If you're visiting with us this morning, you need not be a member of River Oaks Community Church in order to participate in this table of grace, as we've been saying over and over and over again this morning. Uh, You do, however, need to be trusting in Christ alone. You need to be trusting in grace alone, by faith alone, that the reason that you are justified in the presence of Almighty God is simply based on the atoning work of Jesus on your behalf. But if that's true for you, you are are welcome. You are welcome to come. If you're trusting in that and something else, do not come to this table. You need to do work with God. You need to have the Holy Spirit show you the reality of what's actually true. Do not come to this table if you are trusting in anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ to justify you before God. But if you are trusting in Jesus alone, run. Walk orderly to the table. Walk orderly to the table and rejoice in this demonstration of grace. We also ask that you be in right standing with your own local church if you're visiting with us this morning. And if you're not sure if you are, just I'll be up here. You can come and talk to me. Let me pray for us and then you are welcome to come. Father, we rejoice this morning because Jesus accomplished something that we could not accomplish. He qualified us to sit at this table even though we were unqualified. We were once your enemies and now we are your family and friends seated at your table in fellowship. We recognize that there's nothing that we could have done that could make us righteous in your sight. There's nothing that we add to the atoning work of Jesus on our behalf that helps to justify us in your sight or preserve our justification in your sight. We recognize that as important as good works are, their merits do not make us acceptable in your sight. So we thank you for the blood of Jesus and his atoning work on our behalf. And I pray that this morning you would give us a taste a greater taste of how glorious that reality is. So lead us by your spirit now. Convict us in areas where we need to be convicted of sin and comfort us in areas where we need to be comforted. As you convict us of sin, Lord, I then pray that you would freshly remind us of the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus and of the blood of Jesus alone to justify us in your presence. And we ask these things in his name, amen.